Well, I want to invite you to turn with me in God's Word this morning to Psalm chapter 34. Psalm chapter 34, and while you're turning to Psalm 34, I would ask you to rise to your feet for the reading of God's Word. Psalm chapter 34, verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. We join me in prayer. Father, these very words bring uh, life and encouragement into our hearts, into our souls. Only a few words in this one particular passage remind us of the truth of who you are, that you indeed are good. And God, in a world that is filled with so much evil, I pray that you would encourage and reassure your people today of your goodness. God, guard us from uh, a forgetful attitude. Guard us from uh, bitter hearts. Guard us from judgmental spirits. And as we approach you, uh, the holy God of the universe, I do pray that you would remind us of this important attribute that is yours. I pray that you would do good things this morning here in your presence. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you pay attention to the news, if you read the newspapers, if you uh, spend time surfing the internet, it will come as no surprise that the headlines have been quite glaring over the past couple of weeks. Here are some headlines that I have read over the past several days. Paris attacks were carried out by three groups tied to the Islamic State. Another headline reads, fear of new terrorist plot spreads. German stadium evacuated after threat. One headline reads, could what happened in Paris happen here? Alleged ringleader in Paris attacks killed in raid, officials said. I received a tweet just a few moments ago on my phone that says, Belgian premier announces serious and imminent threat. That is as of about three minutes ago. One headline read a few days ago, should we close the border to the refugees? One paper read, how one of the nation's most promising basketball players became homeless. And that's not the first headline I've read that speaks in those terms. One heartbreaking headline that you're very familiar with from a few days ago. Charlie Sheen says he's HIV positive, that he has been extorted for $10 million over his diagnosis. And the headlines continue to bombard us. They hit us on a daily basis. And of course, most of the news that we receive is negative to the point that some of you have chosen to cast the news aside altogether. I've talked to several people over the last few years who's, who have told me that their physician says, stop reading the newspaper. Stop surfing the internet. It's bad for your health. The reality is this, we, li we live in a world that suffers under the curse of sin. We live in a world that is filled with horrible, horrible pain. 
And as we scan the headlines and we soak in the reality of the world around us, it becomes all the more important that we affirm the goodness of God. The goodness of God. When we affirm the goodness of God, we are affirming what the scriptures make very, very clear. You see, the goodness of God reassures us that when the world appears to be spinning out of control, God is still good. The goodness of God comforts us when the evil surrounds us and wraps its arms around our throats. The goodness of God encourages us when the world seeks to squeeze us into its mold. What does the Bible mean when it affirms the goodness of God? That's the direction I want to take you this morning as we continue our study. We have entitled The Wonders of God. And our objective is threefold today. First, I want to spend a few minutes defining this attribute. That is to say the goodness of God. Then I want to move and take several minutes to give you some descriptions of that goodness as they emerge in Scripture. We'll describe the goodness of God. And then finally, I want to end on a practical note and answer this question. How should we, as the people of God, respond to the goodness of God? And so let's begin with first things first by giving a definition. When we define the goodness of God... We recognize that the Hebrew word for good is a very simple little word. It means pleasant or delightful. It means cheerful or happy. And as we move forward in our study on the attributes of God, I would remind you that we serve a happy God. That might sound a little strange to you, but let me tell you why God is happy. He's happy to be God because he is God. The Westminster Confession of Faith, that is to say the shorter Confession of Faith, asks this all-important question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. I want to ask this question, what is the chief end of God? And the answer may come as a bit of a surprise to you. The chief end of God is to glorify God And enjoy himself forever. Because if God does not enjoy God and enjoy himself forever, to glorify himself forever, then he ceases to be God. He ceases to be God. And so God is good. He is pleasant. He is delightful. He is cheerful. He is happy. I want to give you a definition, and I'll call this our anchor definition that we'll refer back to. And that is the definition that is set forth by Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology, and the definition reads as follows. The goodness of God means that God is the final standard of good and that all that God is and does is worthy of approval. It might surprise you, but that also comes as a bit of a surprise to some people in the world. We will see that this definition is actually somewhat controversial. We'll come back to it in a moment. Another definition by A.W. Pink. Dr. Pink says that God is the highest good. God is not only the greatest of all beings, but he is the best. I have a good friend who lives in upstate New York, and he he loves to pull this kind of nonsense on me. He comes up to me, and he shakes my hand, and he says, David Steele, you're a good man. You're not a great man, but you're a good man. I say, thanks a lot, you ding-dong, right? 
But when we talk about God, God is a good God. He is not only a good God, he's a great God. Pink says it best. He is the highest good. He's not only the greatest of all beings, he is the best of all beings. That great Princetonian theologian, Charles Hodge, put it this way. Goodness includes benevolence, love, mercy, and grace. As we continue our study together, we will learn more about God's love and his mercy and his grace. But Hodge continues, by benevolence is meant the disposition to promote happiness. Love includes complacency, desire, and delight. And has rational beings for its objects. That is you and me. Hodge continues. Mercy is kindness exercised towards the miserable. That's you and me. And includes pity, compassion, forbearance, and gentleness. He says grace is love exercised toward the unworthy. That's you and me. And all of these elements of goodness exist in God without measure and without end. In him, they are infinite, eternal, and immutable. And of course, in his landmark bestseller, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says it like this, The goodness of God is that which disposes him to be kind, cordial, and full of goodwill toward men. He is tender-hearted and of quick sympathy, and his unfailing attitude toward all moral beings is open, frank, and friendly. Tozer says, by his nature, he is inclined to bestow blessedness, and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. Aren't you happy to hear those last few words? That by his nature... He is inclined to bestow blessedness and he takes holy pleasure in the happiness of his people. Can I put it in in words that would appeal more to young people? God digs it when you're happy. He is delighted when you are happy. And we need to remember this morning that the only way we are truly happy is when we find our happiness in him and him alone. You see, we've looked at definitions from these astute theologians, and we come to this point where we say that the goodness of God is, is something that is just assumed by Christian people. You have heard the phrase that has become popular in recent years that God is good all of the time. He's good all of the time, and yes, of course, that is true. His goodness is assumed by Christian people. To, dis- to ascribe the goodness of God is to ascribe something that is properly basic to him. It is basic to his nature. It is basic to who he is as the God of the universe. But we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared as we, as we wander around in the marketplace of ideas and we have the chance to tell people that God is good all the time. We need to be prepared because we will encounter a worldview that will reject that notion. It will utterly reject the notion that God is good. Why? Because when Wayne Grudem defines God's goodness as the final standard of all good. Grudem speaks in absolute terms. God is the final standard of all that is good. And that notion rubs in the face 
against a relativistic worldview that rejects any notion of absolute truth. And we've talked about this in prior sermons where the relativist says there is no such thing as absolute truth. And because the relativist holds that, he certainly can't believe, you see, that God is the final standard of good. He rejects moral absolutes. You may recall the the famous Russian novelist, Dostoevsky. I have some friends around the world who live uh, literally all around the world, uh, one in Indonesia, another in uh, Okinawa, another in the Czech Republic. And we all decided to, uh, because we're smart people, we're going to read The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And you know what we learned? We're not as smart as we thought we were. Because, I mean, I was going to, if I'm honest with you, I was going to read ahead and I was going to smoke these guys. I was going to be done in like a month, right? Have you ever tried to read that book? My word, I can't keep the characters straight. I mean, I would even write the characters down. I would say, he's the brother, he's the brother, he's the brother, he's the aunt, he's the, she's the aunt, he's the uncle, he's the, he's the... I got about 200 pages into it. I had no idea what I was doing. And I, I felt like such a failure. But I didn't feel so bad when my buddies got a hold of me and they said, do you have any idea what Dostoevsky's trying to say? I said, no, I have no idea. Let's bag the book. We're just a bunch of dummies. But he did say something that I can't understand, and I know you will grasp as well with me. He said this, if God does not exist, everything is possible. Now, I get that. If you're here today and and you reject the, the existence of a God who is the absolute standard of goodness, recognize this, you can do whatever you want. You can murder You can steal, you can loot, you can pillage, you can plunder. Don't cut your grass if you don't want to in Linden. (laughs) It doesn't matter, right? Because if God doesn't exist, then everything is literally permissible. One writer puts it like this. Even those who deny moral absolutes have one moral absolute. It's this. You should not believe that there are moral absolutes. You should believe there is no morality. And so, in effect, they have contradictorily have a morality about no morality. That is to say, in so many words, they are speaking out of both sides of their mouths. There is no such thing as absolute truth. There is no such thing as an absolute morality. There is no such thing as an absolute goodness. But you see, those three things are absolute statements that this person makes here's the bottom line the bottom line of god's goodness is this that all he does all he does is worthy of approval there are no exclusions god is the highest standard of good and so one of the things to to really kind of lure you in just for a moment this morning that we will come face to face with is that we shall come to the point where we never challenge God's standard of goodness. And the interesting thing is as Christ followers, we've all done it. We have all done it. I found myself doing it just a few days ago. God, why would you? And whenever I question God like that, I question his Goodness, And I remember, I'm turned back to these definitions that God is the highest 
standard of good. But we're all in the same boat, are we not? We're all on an equal playing field where we've all come from time to time and we've said to God, God, why would you do that? This is the better way. That is the better way. So this is the definition of God's goodness. All that he does is worthy of approval. God is the highest standard of good. Now come with me now as we provide some descriptions of God's goodness. Some descriptions of God's goodness. And we will look at five in particular. There are many more. But the first is this. is The scripture affirms the goodness of God. And this is uh, probably the biggest understatement you'll hear all day. When I say the scripture affirms the goodness of God, the, the word of God affirms the goodness of God over and over and over again. And isn't it ironic that Chris would begin the this, this service today and the call to worship with not only one of his favorite psalms, one of my favorite psalms that I also memorized when I was a youngster, Chris, Psalm chapter 100, and here is what verse 5 says. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. More on that next week. And his faithfulness to all generations. Psalm chapter 106, verse 1 says, He is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. I'll give you a very simple challenge today, and this is something that 100% of us can do, from the youngest child to the oldest adult, is when you leave today and as you go through the rest of your day, and even if the Seahawks lose, that you will say this, God is good. Can you remember that? Not only today, but for the, the rest of your days, whatever it is that faces you, whatever bitter providence stares you in the face, much like I heard a friend of mine has a son-in-law who is faced with a horrible, horrible set of circumstances. But my friend's son-in-law is a Christ follower, and I can tell you this, he will affirm to all those around him that God is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Number two, would you turn with me back to the book of Genesis? Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And we'll see together that the goodness of God is reflected in several things. The goodness of God here in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 is actually reflected in the creation. Here in verse 31, God saw that everything he made and behold, it was very good. You see, we must be very careful as we approach the creation around us is we approach the creation as God's creation. This creation is what? It's very good. If God, who is the highest standard of good, said that his creation is good, guess what? Someone help me. It's good. It is very good. And we turn back to that again and again and again. I would take it one step further and say that when we view God's creation, it should fill us with a holy awe. You see, to view Mount Baker and say, what a beautiful mountain. You see, an atheist can say that Mount Baker is a beautiful mountain. But what does the Christ follower do? The Christ follower says, what a beautiful mountain. And immediately reverts to Psalm chapter 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. See, God's creation 
points us to a good and sovereign God. Number three, the goodness of God is reflected in the good gifts he gives us. Would you turn back to the New Testament, to the book of James? In James chapter 1, in James chapter 1 verse 17, we see this principle emerge very clearly that the goodness of God is reflected in the good gifts he gives us. Something that I'm persuaded we forget day after day after day. Every good gift, verse 17 says, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Have you ever said something like this at a very basic level? Oh, good God, thank you for the gifts that you bring into my life. Thank you for a home to live in. Thank you for a warm shower to bathe in in the morning because I've come to the place where I realize there are people who don't have a home. They don't have a warm home, let alone a home. Some people have a home, but they don't have showers. And some people do have showers, but they don't have warm showers. I've only experienced that one time. The second time I went to the Republic of Belarus to teach at the Bible college, the hotel I was staying in, I went to take a shower. And the government had decided to turn off all the hot water. Really nice. They can do that in that culture. And I took the coldest shower I've ever taken in my life. And boy, that changed my perspective on a lot of things. Woo, boy, that was, that was rough. And so we thank God for the, the little things that he brings into our life. Thank you, God, for warm showers. Thank you for hot coffee. Thank you for strong coffee. Thank you for chocolate. Thank you for beef. That's for all the guys. Thank you for roses. I think in the Christian life, we become so, so jaded sometimes that we forget to thank God for the, the little tiny things that he gives us. I remember I was about 24 years of age and, and uh, I was by myself. I had, I had nothing to do. I think I was 23 because it was before Jerrine and I were married. I was in the city of Portland. I went to a, I went to a, a, a little French restaurant and I got a, a cup of espresso, a slice of cheesecake, and I was reading. Why I remember this, I have no idea. I'm reading The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. And it was like I was in heaven, sitting at a little French restaurant, drinking a cheap little cup of coffee, eating a piece of cheesecake, and reading The Holiness of God. I was filled with wonder. Thank you, God, for these, these little, little things that you give us as your people. The goodness of God is reflected in the good gifts he gives us. And this was a major takeaway for me, and I hope it was for you last week as we gathered together at the Thanksgiving banquet. That is, the Lord has done great things for us. We are filled with joy. Sometimes I wonder if we are truly filled with joy. Because if the Lord has done great things for us, and can we agree that he has? Then we are indeed filled with a holy joy. We are glad. Notice number four. Another description of the goodness of God. The the goodness of God is reflected in his fatherly discipline. Now, we looked at this last week for a moment. We looked at this last week as we discovered the fatherly discipline of God. Here's what Hebrews 12 says. 
Speaking of the other fathers, they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good. That we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I don't know about you, but as we learned in Veritas today... Discipline is not fun. To be disciplined is not fun. To discipline your children is not fun. But here we learn that when God disciplines his children, he does it for a particular reason. He does it for our good. And when he disciplines us, we remember, we recall to mind, oh yes, God is good. Number five. And I would argue this is the most important manifestation of the goodness of God. And that is that the goodness of God is reflected in the ultimate gift of his son. The goodness of God is reflected in the gospel. If you ever question the goodness of God, if we were to do this, I I promise we won't. If 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 I asked you, raise your hand if you have ever questioned the goodness of God, I'll guarantee you half or more hands in the congregation go up. And it's probably more like 90%. Most of us have been there where we question the goodness of God. If you ever come to that place again, if you ever wonder about the goodness of God, if you ever question the goodness of God, if you're ever skeptical about the goodness of God, look to the cross and all those objections will cease. You will remember that God is good. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to to be the propitiation for our sins. When Jesus dies on the cross, he, He affirms the love of God the Father for His people. When Jesus dies on the cross, He not only affirms the love of God, But he absorbs the white hot wrath of the father. And I'll speak for myself. It's the white hot wrath that I deserved. When I sinned, remember that I'm born a sinner by nature and choice and so are you. So when we sin, we all merit wrath. 10,000 degrees of white hot wrath. And thanks be to God that he sent Jesus To stand in as our substitute. To affirm God loves you. As Jesus dies upon the cross, he says, God loves you. And as he dies upon the cross, he takes the hit. He takes the wrath. God inflicts him with his holy, righteous wrath that you deserve and that I deserve. And you and I, as the people of God, stand together and we say... God, you are so good. I want to close this morning by offering some responses, very specific and tangible responses as we come face to face with God's goodness. If you would turn back with me to Psalm chapter 34, we'll tackle this together. The first and proper response for any follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is to acknowledge the goodness of God. To acknowledge the goodness of God. 
Recognize this, that when I say it's the follower of Christ's responsibility, it is also everyone's responsibility. Every pagan, every heretic, every unbeliever, every person who refuses to follow Christ, it is his or her responsibility to acknowledge the goodness of God. But here's what the scripture tells us. They can't do it because their eyes are blinded by the enemy. 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says very plainly that their eyes are blinded to the truth of the gospel. So I grew up in Olympia, and everyone knows what's in the shadow of Olympia. The most beautiful mountain, sorry, the most beautiful mountain in the Northwest is Mount Rainier. Right? Okay, yeah, right. <laughs> you try to tell... You try to tell your blind friend about the beauty of Mount Rainier, and your blind friend says, Okay, I can't see it. You can't convince him. You can't coerce him. You can't cajole him. You can't manipulate him. What needs to happen? His eyes need to be opened to the beauty of Mount Rainier. And so we're to acknowledge the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 34, 8, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And acknowledging the goodness of the Lord means that we agree with all that he deems good. This is where it gets very difficult for us as followers of Jesus. When God says it is good, that means it is good. Even if we disagree, we say, God, I don't see it, but I confess it is very good. Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what his good and acceptable and perfect will. You see, God's will is perfect. God is the highest standard of good. He, he knows what he's doing. And so we acknowledge his goodness. A second response I would offer is found also in verse 8, and that is that we are to taste the goodness of the Lord. We are to taste the goodness of the Lord. That word taste in the Hebrew language, it comes from a word that means to savor, to savor. And I don't know if you ever, if you ever go to a fast food restaurant, especially where the little kids hang out. You ever watch little kids eat McDonald's? It's like... They're Hoover vacuum cleaners. They just suck it in, and then they want to go play. I see some of the moms out there and grandmas going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, you know my kids very well, right? That is the exact opposite of what we want to do. We want to savor, we want to savor the goodness of the Lord. Let me ask you, when is the last time that you savored your meal? Where you, you had a good steak or you, you had a, a good piece of freshly caught salmon. And instead of just, just sucking it in like a Hoover vacuum cleaner, you literally take time to, oh man. And you don't want to swallow it because it's so good. That is what the psalmist is calling us to do here. To, to savor, to taste and see that God is good. We're called to savor the Lord. We're called to taste and see that the Lord is good. And so we taste of the goodness of the Lord when we soak our hearts and our minds in the word of God at the beginning of every day. 
or in the middle of the day or the end of the day. We, we taste the goodness of the Lord when we meditate upon his promises. We taste the goodness of the Lord when we receive forgiveness from a merciful Savior. And we've experienced this today as Jason and the worship team have led us as they do each week. We, we taste, we savor the goodness of the Lord when we come together and worship in corporate community. Jason, there was one point, I don't know if you could hear it, but there was a specific, I don't know which song it was, but I was like, man, I wish the worship team would just like whoosh, stop singing because it was like a, it was like a heavenly choir. You guys right out there. It was, did you hear it? It, it was amazing. And when we do that together, we, we taste, we savor, we see that the Lord is good. There's a third response that also emerges in verse 8. And that is that we are called to take refuge in the Lord. The language of taking refuge means to, to go to a place where one can be safe. It means to go to a place where you can rest and find relief and find comfort. Implying the place of refuge is a place to be trusted and keep a person safe. In 2 Samuel 22, 3, you know the story of King David. He, for much of his young adult life, was running around from his enemies. And 2 Samuel 22 says, My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. Here is a man who knew what it meant to take refuge in the Lord. In 2 Samuel twenty two thirty one, he said, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. In Psalm 1830, we read this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Sound familiar? This this motif of God is our shield, God is our refuge, God is our help, He is our strength. And when we take refuge in the Lord, here's what we find. We find that we are in the safest place. I met with a young lady just a few days ago from a sister church in Ferndale who's headed to the mission field. And uh, as a single young lady, she has been called by God to go to Kosovo. And I says, what, what does your dad think about this? He says, well, that's, a, that's kind of a scary proposition to send your, your single daughter right out of college to a war-torn country. But what her father said is the same thing that I was getting ready to encourage her with, is when you're in the center of God's will, that's the safest place you can be. She is safer in Kosovo than she is in Whatcom County. Why? God is her refuge. He is her safety. He is her shield. He is her delight. And blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Number four, in terms of response, is a response that is a very basic response, but it is a response that many of us struggle with a great deal. And the response goes like this. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Psalm 106, verse 1 says, Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. 
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, Psalm 107 says, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You see some of these psalms repeating themselves, and I think there's a reason for it, is we, we tend to be slow learners because we need to remind ourselves again and again and again that God is good, and we must give thanks to the living God. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Paul says, Give thanks in some circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Someone yell, heresy. Chris knows. He doesn't say that, does it? He doesn't say, give thanks in some circumstances, right? That's the translation from the bedside Baptist. That's the translation from the prone Protestant. God's word says, give thanks in all circumstances for he is good his steadfast love endures forever and as i promised we come to this closing and fitting end a final response is to refuse to refuse to refuse to question god's goodness i skipped one didn't i number five there must have been a reason for that but it's an important one let me encourage you to praise the lord to praise the Lord. Psalm 106, once again, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And then finally, refuse to question God's goodness. We have come to the point in our study this morning that will take an immense amount of courage, that will take an immense amount of faith. When the chips are down, when we experience bitter providence, like my friend's son-in-law, when life takes a turn for the worst, when we walk through two years as a church family of very difficult waters, when we are faced with painful episodes in our Christian lives, when we endure a season of pain, there are a hundred things we could explore this morning. We make this resolution. We stand together and we say, God, I'm hurting. I feel hopeless. I feel helpless. My body is racked with pain. My mom or my dad, my aunt or my uncle, my grandpa, my grandma is racked in pain. My loved one is struggling. I'm going through a divorce. My best friend left me. I'm struggling at school. Whatever it is, we make this resolution. Despite the pain, I refuse to question the goodness of God. And you say, Pastor, that's easier said than done. And that would be correct. But we come back to the truth of God's word that says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. We've all been through difficult seasons some of you over the last year have walked through incredibly painful events in your lives. One of the things that I love to do is on a monthly basis, I, I go down and I say hi to my friend Betsy and, and her crew of, of godly women. And they, they make all kinds of stuff, right? Beautiful, beautiful uh, blankets and, and articles of clothing, just this great stuff. One of the things I've noticed is that sometimes when a group of women get together, they'll make this massive afghan right have you ever seen the back of an afghan it's got this it's like what's happening here 
It looks like nothing. But you turn it over and then you see the pattern and you say, ah, I get it. That is absolutely beautiful. And our Christian lives are like that sometimes, are they not? Where we ask God, God, I know that you are good, but all I can see right now is the back of this very scary looking Afghan. One day, however, one day God will flip the Afghan and we will see the texture and the tone of his plan. We will see how his providential fingers have 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 put all the pieces together in the corporate Afghan of our lives and our families and our church family. And then we'll say, I get it. I get it because God has promised that if we love him, he will work all things together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You will recall last week as I introduced the the idea of a communicable attribute. That a communicable attribute is not only communicated from God to the creature. In this case, God's goodness is communicated to you and I as the creature. But that communicable attribute can also be carried out by the creature. And so as we meditate on the goodness of God, we are challenged to, to mirror to mirror the goodness of God. And we are called to mirror the goodness of God by extending kindness to people. We are called to mirror the goodness of God by welcoming people. And I want to say that I'm proud of so many of you because we have people come to Christ Fellowship and I, and I see you going after people, welcoming them and inviting them to our fellowship. If you're new with us today, let me be one of the first to say, welcome. We're so glad that you are here. And when we welcome you, that is one practical way that we want to share the goodness of God with you. We are called to mirror the goodness of God by, by serving people. And many of the ministry action teams, rather I should say all of the ministry action teams, are committed to mirroring the goodness of God by serving people here on this campus and serving people in this community. We mirror the goodness of God by listening to people, by loving people, by sacrificing for people. Galatians chapter 6 says that, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. There's one final way that we mirror the goodness of God. And I, I, I trust that you are doing this because it is at the essence of why we are on this planet. And that is that we are called to mirror the goodness of God by, by directing people to the cross. Whenever you have a chance to introduce someone to Jesus and by definition, introducing someone to Jesus is to introduce them to what Jesus accomplished on the cross. We mirror the goodness of God. When you invite people to the cross, you in essence say, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who finds refuge in him. I pray that we are in the habit of sharing the gospel in our community, which is to mirror what a good God is like. I pray that we're in the habit of introducing people to Jesus, despite what people will say despite what people will think. And really, when it comes to the end of the day, what's the worst thing they can do to us? What's the worst thing they can do? 
Let us commit together to mirroring the goodness of our great and awesome God. Let's pray together. Father, as the body of Christ, we confess together that you are good. Forgive us for the times when we have questioned your goodness, when we have challenged your goodness, when we have called you out. Uh, Forgive us when we have placed ourselves in a position like Job near the end of the story when we questioned you, or like Jonah when he questioned you, like Sarah when she questioned you. God, help us to demonstrate simple faith and to remember this very simple but profound lesson that you are good. Indeed, you are the highest standard of good. We dare not question uh, that standard. We dare not question your ways, for your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So may we be people of the book today. May we be people committed to the sacred scripture. May we be people committed to affirming that you are good, that your love endures forever. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.